Hello, welcome to the next episode of Build Your Future podcast. Today, I'd like to introduce Niall Scott. Hello, hello, Niall. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. Uh, quite excited to be on your podcast. Good stuff. Look at that. We'll, we'll see what you say at the end, right? Yeah, okay. Happy to start <laughs> with. I might be uh, wanting to run away by the end. <laughs> uh, good stuff. I, I wanted to bring you on because obviously we'd met quite a few years ago now, four or five years ago met in Bali it's been quite good to see yours and Matt's kind of grow throughout this time and so I want to kind of bring you on I know you guys kind of specialize in HMOs and kind of are experts in that field so I wanted to kind of bring somebody on with a specialist HMO knowledge and can kind of give a bit of advice around that really so what would be nice to, to begin with is maybe we could talk about how you got into the property sphere the property world and then we can go on to how you met Matt and how that kind of uh, JV partnerships came together and then we can kind of look at the the economics of the HMO market. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I got into property maybe eight, nine years ago now. Um, I was working in the corporate world, uh, living in London and really just did not like that lifestyle. Um, I would happily say I was probably one of the worst employees anyone could ever had uh, <laughs> or anyone could ever have rather. Uh, it's um, yeah, and I, I always moved around from job to job, never really found anything that really excited me or interested me uh, to to do long term. Um, and the the last job that I had was in contracting. So it was contracting within the financial services sector. Um, so working for the likes of Lloyds Bank and financial ombudsman service and things like that, uh, which was good I guess in a sense uh, but again as I was a contractor I didn't have any future plans uh, so I'd, I wasn't working in a nine-to-five where I had a um, an employed role and um, so I was technically self-employed with no pension no sick pay no holiday pay none of the perks that come with being um, an employee uh, in that sense um, and then uh, 2014 uh, unfortunately my dad passed away um, and that kind of gave me the kick in the backside to think about my future and what's next for me, really, um, and have a bit of a think about what I could do that was more, I guess, more enjoyable for a start, uh, where I wasn't reliant on somebody else telling me how much I was worth, how much they were going to pay me, how many days holidays I was allowed per year, uh, that type of thing. Um, and that's where I came across property. Um, a friend of mine had done some training um, she was a lot younger than me and her and her mum seemed to be very successful in the property world. So I was like, okay, maybe maybe I could do that. Uh, so I had a, a look around, found some training courses, uh, went on uh, a three-day event uh, and that led me to a 12-month training program um, and that kind of kick-started my property career or I don't like to call it a property journey everyone talks about the journey that they're on I rather I like to call it an adventure because you don't know what's around the corner <laughs> so it's a it's, it's an adventure that we're on at the minute I like uh, that. <clears throat> and that kind of uh, that led me to uh, meeting Matt because uh, Matt Baker was on the same training and uh, we became friends and about a year or so later then we decided to try and work together as a JV partnership and then that kind of grew into where we are today. 
Okay, nice. So did you guys kind of come across a deal and JB on that deal and then it just so happened that you continued to grow or was the plan from the beginning, let's let's work together, let's kind of push each other and, and see where it goes? How did that kind of form? Yeah, so it's a kind of a combination really. Um, because we had we had started off very slowly. Um, I had zero experience in property before I'd started. I had no money to start with either. Um, so it was very, very slow, a laborious process. And I was still working full time and dabbling in property as well uh, with the aim of getting out of the day job as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and started off with little buy to lets. Um, and anyone that has ever had a buy to let knows that despite what anyone says, they will never make you a millionaire unless you have a million of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, getting out of the day job was proving to be quite a slow process. Um, my properties that I had bought were in the Northwest and Matt happened to be living in the Northwest at that time as well. Um, and he found a property in the same town that I was investing in. Um, so uh, rather than him jumping in and kind of stepping on my toes of where I was investing. He's like, well, I find this property. You're already investing there. Why don't we try and see if we can make it work together? Um, So we did, and it went really well. And instead of buying one very, very slowly, we ended up buying three or four on the bounce, which happened a lot quicker. Uh, And I think the reason that it went a lot quicker was because uh, I obviously wasn't doing it by myself. I had an accountability partner. Um, So... If I didn't make that phone call or didn't uh, fill in the mortgage application form or didn't do it at the time it was supposed to have been done, um, you know, I've got somebody else in the background that's, you know, there to ask me, why did you not do it? Why has it not been done already? Um, so kind of give me, again, another kick in the in the backside just to keep moving forward. Um, and then once that we realized that that was going quite well, it was quite a good partnership, uh, we decided to, to make it more of a formal business partnership and set up Scott Baker Properties on the back of it. Nice. So you're very fortunate then to uh, not only kind of like each other and have matching personalities, but then operating in a similar area as well. So kind of fortunate in both senses, right? Yeah, 100%. And I think that's one of the most important things in in my view is because uh, you see people trying to get into partnerships and to joint venture with other people. Um, and in my view, to get into a business or a business partnership with someone, um, it's it's very similar to a marriage. You know, you have to like that person. You're going to be tied to them um, throughout the, the 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 term that you have your properties and your mortgages together. So you have to like each other. You have to be able to get on with each other. You have to have a, uh, a similar outcome or desire or goal at the end of it. Um, and we do, we've got similar personalities, but got different uh, skill sets. Um, which again is important because if we're both bringing the same thing to the table, then what's the point in that partnership? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting that you kind of said there about the accountability partner as well. And mm. I see it time and time again, the benefits of having a JV partner or a partner of some sorts, because one of it, it you kind of mentioned the carrot and the stick sort of thing there, and you don't want to or get a kick up the arse from the other person if you don't do what you say you're going to do. But then equally, there's kind of this human psychology element where you don't want to let the other person down. Yes, 100%. so you'll support each other, and you'll you'll usually fight so much harder for somebody else than you do yourself. And yeah. I find that really interesting. And you you see it time and time again where people will pay money for uh, a PT, for instance. People mm. know that they can go to the gym and lift weights. It's not rocket science, but people kind of 
pay for that or, or have that accountability there because that kick up the arse neatly. They don't want to let the PT down. If the PT sat around waiting for them and they don't turn up, then all these kind of things. So it, it kind of links through, you know, health, fitness and, and finance and professional life as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree totally with that. And it's, uh, you, you can you can lie to yourself. You can tell yourself uh, or delay what you're doing. For example, as you talk about going to the gym, you know, everybody sets a goal or wants to get up at seven o'clock or six o'clock and go to the gym before they go to work or whatever. Uh, but when it's cold and it's dark and it's wet outside, that's the last thing you want to do. So instead of actually doing it, hit the snooze button. Whereas if there's somebody there waiting for them, um, there's a, a I guess a bigger commitment or a bigger accountability to actually do it. Yeah, definitely. I had a friend recently, he was moving to Canada and wanted to get back into shape for it. And equally, I was just coming back from injury and kind of wanted to get back down the gym. But um, I think when you've been out of the game for two, three months, you kind of go, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. And tomorrow turns into next week, which then turns into next month. And we both said to each other, no, what we'll do is we're going to start on the first of the month and every single day we're going to take a picture of ourselves, you know, working out, be it go for a run, playing football, down the gym, whatever. And so every day you'd be getting a message, where's my picture? Have you have you been to the gym yet? Have you done this yet? And so kind yeah. of going from having not done anything for two months to then every single day for a whole month smashing it out because you had that accountability and you wake up in the morning and you've got a picture of them down the gym, you go, oh, they've done there. Now, now <laughs> I've got to do mine sort of thing. And I find it really interesting how that kind of, again, links into property. If you're working with somebody, it's like, well, I've called my 10 estate agents today. I've sent mm. out my 20 letters today. What have you done? You go, yeah. Oh, yeah, I need to pull my finger out. I need to, I don't want to let the team down. You know, you don't want to be the one um, putting everyone behind. You want to be everyone, the one pushing everyone forward. Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to spend hours and hours and hours on it um, as well. You know, especially in the early days when you're just starting out, there were, I, like I say, I was in a full-time job. You don't have to spend the entirety of your lunch break or whatever free time you have. But if you are consistently giving your 50 minutes here, 20 minutes there, then all of those uh, actions actually add up at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. I find that a lot of people need to be all or nothing. It's yeah. they don't do anything and then all of a sudden their whole weekend needs to be absolutely dedicated to it. And then they just feel burnt out and they don't want to do it ever again. When yeah. actually, if you just dedicate you know, 20 minutes every evening, just scrolling on right move or speaking to a few agents or doing a bit of networking or doing something, those 20 minutes consistently will compound and then opportunities will start to arise, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And it's as it, you wanna, you don't want it to become a burden. You want it to be something that is something that you can actually slot into your current uh, lifestyle, if you like. Yeah. So, it, so uh, for example, when I was uh, starting off on my journey to work, it'd be like an hour there and an hour back again, just sat on a train. So, reading uh, a personal development book or doing listening to podcasts or whatever it might be that is actually doing something and that all all those little things help so rather than just reading the metro or listening to bbc news you know you're you're actually doing something that's helping you and going to benefit you by by uh doing doing those little um self-help things absolutely they talk a lot about passive time and that's exactly what i was doing when i was driving to work again it took me an hour there an hour back and you think that's two hours a day and then when I added that up, that's 40 hours a month. So essentially mm. another working week, you're sat in the car or sat on the train 
doing nothing, just listen to radio on, which is fine. It's nice to obviously listen to some music and, and de-stress and chill out a bit. But equally, mm. you think if I dedicated those 40 hours a month to you know, listening to an audiobook or listen to a podcast or educating myself in or all these different areas, you kind of think, well, if I apply that over at that year's time, then yeah. you're going to be so much more ahead. Yeah, 100%. And I I don't watch the news. I don't read newspapers anymore. It's just, well, number one, it's too depressing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if anything major is happening in the world, I'm sure I'll find out about it. I don't need to watch the news three or four times a day to, to see what's going on. Um, so I would rather spend that time um, listening to a motivational video on YouTube um, or reading a book that's going to help me build my business or whatever it might be. Uh, rather than spending time, wasting time, I would say, wasting time doing things like that. You obviously do need downtime. You do need to chill out. You do need to relax. Uh, but watching the news and reading newspapers, in my, for me, is definitely not relaxing. It just depresses me. Yeah, absolutely. What you're saying there is you're consuming knowledge or consuming information that is going to advance uh, you as a person opposed to consuming information that is just going to fill you with fear, anxiety, and what other crap comes with it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So just going back then, so you said that when you first started, you did the three day and then you did that 12 month. Was that quite daunting kind of paying, I obviously don't know how much you paid, but paying for a 12 month thing, you've kind of gone from, well, you're obviously still working, you're then um, taking this leap of faith to some degree. Was it quite a daunting time or was it exciting or how were you feeling during that time? Uh, it was quite a mixed bag, to be honest, because I was already in debt. I, I, I hadn't saved anything. So I was, on, I was earning decent money, um, but I had no clue about uh, saving money or preparing for the future or having a nest egg or anything like that. Um, so what came in went out and then some. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at that point in my life, I would just... Uh, I'd moved to London, it was new and it was exciting and you get an offer of a credit card or offer of a loan through the post and you take it and you enjoy it and you have a holiday or whatever, which is all great. Um, but then to, but I was, the, the, the irony is that I was more comfortable paying for a holiday that I couldn't afford to go on, on a credit card, than I was on buying education that was actually going to benefit me on a credit card or a loan. Yeah. Um, so it did take a little bit of, you know, um, self-talk to to get myself there. But I think uh, the fact that I knew that, because I could see how my friend was doing and how she was so successful in, in the property world, I was like, well, she hasn't done really anything that was majorly, you know, different um, or, uh, you know, out there. I was like, well, why could I not do the same thing? So if I give it my all, if I commit to it, because, and I think that's the big thing, there's absolutely no point in buying it for buying a training um, or paying for a mentorship or doing any of the courses if you're not going to commit to it. You know, I could have paid for it and done nothing with it and it would have been wasted. Yeah. Um, but, but I had such a, a desire at that time to change how my life was. Um, so I, I was highly motivated to change. And I think that was a driving factor is that I, I knew if I didn't, if you don't do anything, if you don't change anything, everything will remain the same. And I would have just carried on in as I was. 
Mm. Um, so I had I had that desire and motivation to change things. I guess uh, what you had was some <clears throat> internal conflict where you had this instant gratification of going on holiday, having fun, enjoying mm. it, but then it's the kind of what then what what after follows that. Well, then you've got this uh, paying for education with kind of no, no guarantees on the back end, but this yeah. motivation to want to learn, grow and, and change and to kind of that view in the future. So I guess it's that, yeah, instant gratification versus the uncertainty and delayed gratification, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's, it's uh, it, it, it was, a, to be, I guess it was a bit of a gamble um, doing it. There are so many different training organizations out there. Some of them are very good. Some of them are not so good, shall we say. Um, uh, so it, it's just, and, and, and I guess at that point as well, there wasn't as much hype on social media. Um, it was just starting to take off at that point. Um, so there was less information available, which was probably a good thing because if there were, I think, I think that's a problem right now is there are so, there's so much information out there. It's just like, well, where the hell do I start? You know, um, mm. and a lot of people say, and I guess it is true to a certain extent that you can learn everything that you want to learn online because everything's on YouTube, everything's on, on a Google search. But if you don't know what questions to ask, if you don't know what you're looking for, then how can you find the answers? Yeah. Because I, I've discovered very quickly that every deal that we do is different. Every day I learn something new, every deal, uh, every project will teach me something that I hadn't known before. So nobody ever knows it all. Um, so if if you don't know what questions to stick into Google, how are you going to get the right answer? <laughs> so yeah. having a mentor, a coach, or a training program is what is really has sorry is what has really helped me um, because when I get stuck and I don't know what to do, I've got someone to fall back on. Yeah, I guess that gives you that tailored and bespoke advice. And mm. going back to what you said beginning there as well is it's kind of that that risk and that gamble to some degree. But I was listening to a podcast uh, by Modern Wisdom, funny enough, and he was saying there that equally not doing anything is a gamble and not doing anything is a risk. And yeah. you look at the opportunity cost of that and you think, oh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to fail, so I won't start. And then you look back five years' time and you're still doing the same job that you've hated, mm. you're still doing the same sort of stuff. You haven't um, grown or done anything or achieved anything that you're hoping to. And that was because you were scared to fail. And then you look back and you go, well, you've already lost to some degree because you didn't even start, you didn't even try. Exactly. And, and not everything that you attempt to do is going to be successful. But by failing, you learn so much by those mistakes. It can be expensive. It can be uh, motivationally destructive uh, mm. to to fail. But if you don't fail, you're not learning anything. Mm. Um, so don't be afraid to fail because you every failure has a learning behind it. Yeah, we spoke about this on another podcast where we kind of mentioned failing forward and failing quickly. So, mm. so I think that a lot of people are, are scared to fail. And so again, like I said, we don't start, but then once you kind of started, your, your first deal might not be your best deal, but 100%. at least you've got started. At least then you've taken those learnings that you're then applying to deal two, then into deal three. And again, this compound knowledge, as you said, is going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And then in five years time, you'll look back at yourself 
and you go, I don't recognize this person anymore because I've learned so much and okay, I've had troubles and tribulations, and everything else, but yeah. no good story comes from it being easy, right? You have to kind of go through these things to, and this, this pain to grow uh, in certain ways. Yeah. And I think that, that, that is the key word. It's growth. You know, every, every, you, you, it is, it is a process that you go through and you do change and your mindset changes and your strategies will change and how you look at deals will change. Um, but if you don't start in the first place, you're never going to get to that point. Um, I've seen that there are there have been quite a few people that did the same training as I did on the, um, way back in the day. I think it was 2015 I started, uh, did my first training and took off from there. Um, there are people that were on the training course with me. They'll come to every networking event. They will be on every webinar that has ever been, and but still haven't got off the start line mm. because because they're afraid of it not being perfect. So if you sit around and wait for that perfect deal to fall into your lap, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it was Stephen Barlett says you can kind of put all the information to sat-nav and kind of get get everything started. But at the end of the day, you're the one that needs to put it into drive and put your foot on the accelerator, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the, I guess, one of my uh, skills, if you like, it's, or yeah, I guess it is a skill to a certain extent. Some people may view it as a detriment, <laughs> is that uh, the uh, attention to detail. Um, so some people are very analytical um, and they overanalyze everything. So you've got the expression analysis paralysis. Yeah. You can talk yourself into or fudge the numbers out of any deal that you want. And you, if you, that my, one of my favorite quotes is, if you want to do it, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. And people will find ways of, or excuses not to do something. So yeah. if it's, it's, uh, and I think that's, again, the benefit of working with somebody else is that when it comes to a deal, I hold my hands up and quite happily and readily admit that I'm not the best person to do the fine tuning and detail with the numbers. Quite ironic when I worked in finance, but <laughs> some of you didn't cost 2008, 2009. It's fine. <laughs> so, but I know that you know I, I know on a on a higher level whether a deal works or whether it doesn't. Um, so if it does, and I think it gets to a certain point, then I will like okay, Matt, put this through the spreadsheet and see if we can make it work. Um, and then that's where he steps in, and that's that's his skill set. Um, so it's it's just finding those balances, really. Nice. Well, that links us nicely into the next question. And so you obviously said that you guys partnered up. So did you partner up and then do buy to lets or did you go straight into HMOs or how did that uh, proceed? Yeah, so the intention was always to get into the HMO market as quick as possible. Um, but neither Matt nor myself had any experience in property when we started. And uh, <laughs> to be honest, even getting the first buy-to-let mortgage uh, and lending was quite a struggle um, on day one. Um, but we were able to both get our own first few buy-to-lets off the ground. And then that gave us the experience and the kudos, if you like, uh, to be able to get into the HMO market um, from then. The, the intention and my goal on day one was to replace the day job income. That's all I was thinking about. I wasn't as... Uh, to, to be brutally honest, I wasn't really worried about how that came in. Um, as long as I could replace the day job income and worry about the next step at that point. Yeah. Um, 
so doing HMOs seemed like the very logical way forward. So uh, we started off on buy-to-lets separately, then jointly looking at buy-to-lets and realized that obviously getting two, 300 quid a month profit is great, uh, but um, it's not going to break the bank and it's not going to get you out of the day job. So we moved into HMOs uh, relatively quickly, um, probably about a year probably about a year down the line, I would say. Yeah, so the first buy to let came in 2016 and by 2017, then I was looking at HMOs. Okay. Um, and I guess, like I say, initially the attraction to that was the income, but there was always, uh, as, as we started, you know, investing in that market, we realized very quickly that there was a massive gap and discrepancy with what was happening in the HMO world. Um, and, and I think the main reason for that is, number one, I guess, lack of education and lack of understanding of the rules and regulations because it is a highly regulated market. Um, it can be quite difficult to manage the properties and manage the portfolios. Um, so people jump into it without the proper knowledge, experience or help um, and then realize quite quickly how difficult it is and then run for the hills. <laughs> um, and it's, it can be, it's, it's very time consuming as well. And what what we see in the market is we see that there are a lot of people doing what we refer to as beige boxes. Um, so you see on the market, uh, or if you have a look on Spare Room, everyone can see that pretty much every single HMO within a town or an area uh, will all look the same. Yeah. Um, so they'll all have their magnolia walls or, or white walls. They'll all have their gray carpets. They'll all have their standard uh, landlord furniture packs. Uh, so there's there's no real difference or anything to attract me to your house as to attract it to anybody else's. And it's just a matter of, in most instances, of just people filling rooms. Yeah. Um, so we got quite, I guess, annoyed with that quite quickly. Um, and there was a, a, a saying uh, a few years ago when I got into property, it's like some people would say, well, it doesn't matter what the house looks like. You don't have to live in it yourself which really, really, really annoys me. It's a backward outlook, isn't it? A really backward outlook. The way we look at it is the people that are living in our houses are paying our wages. So why would we not care that the people that are paying our wages are going to stay there, pay their rent and look after the asset that we've created? Absolutely. Um, so we started looking at uh, larger HMOs and co-living. Um, and felt that that was a much better way and more logical way of dealing with the issue of shared houses in the UK. And and HMOs have a bad rap, a bad rep. Sorry, mm. um, they all have a they always have a bad name associated to them because of antisocial behaviour. Every time I mention the word HMOs, people say, "Oh, you house students." It's not just students that live in HMOs but it's the perception that people have of how these properties have been badly managed and yeah. badly put together. So we're trying to change that. So what was your strategy then? Did you purchase already pre-existing HMOs with, as you said, the Magnolia walls and then put your own spin and flair on it and were able to kind of push rents up that way? Or did you completely start from scratch and kind of take, uh, you know, standard family housing and then convert into HMOs and do it that way? Yeah, so we've always wanted to put our own stamp on them um, to make them our own. Um, so with the market as it is right now, we're, we are actually looking at buying existing ready-made HMOs 
that haven't had seen a lick of paint for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so those type of HMOs we would buy and we would look at, um, assuming we can get it for the right price, obviously. It's cheap, cheaper the better. But cool. uh, but when we're looking at creating a new a new co-living uh, property, then we will look at an existing family home or a commercial property and create the environment and the, the, the type of property that we want to create. So we'll, we'll use our own architects or project management teams, um, interior designers, and then create our property around that. Interesting. So let's kind of then go into, let, let's start with the, the first deal that you guys uh, done then, or, or perhaps let, let's go on to let's discuss your, your favorite deal, or your, it doesn't have to be your best one, but your favorite one, be it, taking an unloved property and we're able to really kind of put your flair on it or your favorite one based on the, the biggest learnings that you've taken, you know, give us an example of your, your favorite deal that you've done to date. Uh, I think my favorite one is probably, um, one that we did, uh, favorite for a number of reasons because there were a lot of learnings associated with it. So we, we bought a property, uh, in Portsmouth. So we operate on the South coast, uh, we've got properties all over the country, but now, uh, predominantly focused on the south coast. Uh, the first that that one in Portsmouth was our first deal in Portsmouth, and it was a very unloved three-bedroom buy-to-let. Um, but it was massive. It had a really large footprint, two large reception rooms on the ground floor, three large bedrooms on the first floor, plus uh, a, a family bathroom, um, and then scope to go into the loft as well. Um, so. As luck would have it, after we bought the property, uh, we were going through the process of designing it um, and setting it up to the standards that the council has in place for HMO. Um, Portsmouth operates an Article 4 directive, which means that it can be a lot more difficult to get HMO licensing and planning. Um, There's a lot of hoops to jump through first. And after we had our offer accepted and the deal had completed, the council decided they were going to change their regulations and their uh, criteria. So the plans that we had on place in place on day one, we had to change them because they no longer met the standards. Well, uh, substantial changes. Thankfully not. Um, they just changed the, the size of the communal spaces for larger HMOs and they, char- they changed the size of the en-suites um, in HMOs as well uh, okay. for for that element of it. So thankfully we had a large property with a large footprint, so we were able to make the amendments, but it just meant that we had to go back to the drawing board uh, with the architects and start again. Um, but again, we ended up with a better product at the end, so it was probably a good thing that it did happen. Yeah. Um, so we completed on it and we started the refurbishment at the beginning of March, 2020. And then we all know what happened in the middle of March, 2020. The big so, the big C, yeah, the big lockdown. Um, so we had just, like I say, instructed the build team that started the rip out, that started the refurb, and then we all went into lockdown. Um, so the builders were local. Um, so there was maybe one person on site at a time. And depending on what trades were needed at the time, someone could work in the loft and then someone work in the extension at the back that they were far enough apart. So we were able to keep it going, um, but just at a snail's pace. Um, so that was a learning curve, uh, because obviously we had bought it on a bridge, um, and we had a, a time frame in order to com- in which to complete the refurbishment, to refinance it, and get it off the bridge. 
Um, so that that was a that was an issue. Uh, there was also a problem then because again because everything had gone into lockdown, the console shut down. So our planning application for for Sui Generis also went on hold, and it took us eighteen months to get our planning wow. on, on the house. Um, so that meant meant that even though we managed to get the refurbishment all done by I think it was about by about June or July twenty one, so it took a hell of a lot longer than expected. We still couldn't rent it as a HMO, um, but because of the situation that we were in, um, we thought, well, what else can we do with the property? Every project that we look at, obviously co-living and HMO is number one option. But if for whatever reason that doesn't work, what else can we do with it? Could we put it as SA? Could we put it to the local uh, local authority to rent to them? Is there a, a private uh, company that would take it off as for short-term corporate lets? Um, so. SA was uh, exit number two, um, so we put it out and we rented it on SA for over a year um, whilst we waited for the planning permission to come through. Um, sorry, it'd be probably be less than a year. Um, so we were able to put NHS staff into the house that were uh, working in the local hospital whilst all the pandemic was going on. So it actually, again, like I say, it wasn't what we had planned to do, but it actually worked out quite well because we were still able to do some good in the community, help house people that needed to be housed um, without breaking any rules or doing anything that we weren't supposed to do. Mm. Um, we were able to refinance it onto a second bridge. Um, so it didn't, we didn't uh, again um, break the rules of the, the finance or the lending that we had in place. And the lender, we've worked with them for quite a while. So they understood the situation that we were in. Um, and then we eventually got our planning permission. We got our licensing through, um, and it was really easy to fill it. So we were achieving higher rents than most people in the area because of the quality of the property. Uh, we've got to set up our own management company to manage it so that we can really focus on the co-living element um, and put people into the house that actually want to live together. Not. Yeah not just putting people into rooms because they're looking for rooms. It's, it is matching people with people. Um, so we've got, um, we try and focus on, first of all, interests, hobbies, likes, uh, employment. And we also encourage tenant-led viewings as well, where we can. So if you're living in a house and there's a room empty, you get a say in who's going to move into the room next door to you. Um, and that creates the community vibe of the co-living element. Um, yeah, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's interesting. A friend of mine just recently moved down to London, and um, he he got interviewed by the others living in the house, which I thought yeah. was quite interesting. And actually, when when you think about it, it's a no-brainer. These are the people that are going to be spending all their time together, and it's mm. all about ease and retention from a landlord's perspective. So why is the landlord, you know, in, interviewing this person for for five minutes before making such uh, a big decision on who they're going to live with when actually it's the people already living there and they're, they're the key key instigators aren't they the key stake stakeholders 100 percent. and when you've when you've got a new newly refurbished property like that we had seven bed house um so the first person that moves into that house sets the tone for the rest of the people that are going to be moving in yeah um so it's very important for them to actually want to live together um so yeah, so getting that right 
and don't get me wrong, it's not a foolproof service. You know, things will go wrong. You will get the occasional bad egg that will move in and everyone will hit them. But it's just trying to mitigate that as much as possible. Mm. Um, and by following that method, it means that generally people will stay a lot longer, which is a massive tick for any landlord. The longer they're in the house, the better. They look after the property that they're living in and they'll pay the rent. You know, the, one of the most expensive times for us is when is in tenant changeover because there will be a void period whilst you have to you know one person moves out you deep clean the room you have to do upgrades or updates to uh, in maintenance and painting and advertising and viewings and then getting somebody back into the room that is an expensive time for for any landlord so mid minimizing that as much as possible is really important um so then we um we we had never sold anything um, in all the time that we were doing property. It was always buy and hold for cash flow. Um, but then we thought maybe we should look at mixing it up a little bit and create uh, add a little bit of a capital strategy into the mix um, so that we create buffers and uh, safety pots for ourselves um, moving forward. Uh, so we decided to sell the house um, and we sold it uh, through a private uh, company. Uh, it wasn't really on the open market as such. Um, and we sold it for a premium rate and retained the management of the house. Um, and we also won an award for it for the best co-living deal uh, of the year for the Property Investor Awards. Oh, nice. So you, you didn't sell your buy to lets to then use that equity to invest in new HMOs. You, you actually sold a HMO. Yeah. Sold okay. the HMO, yeah. So we've never, I've never sold any buy to lets. Uh, quite frankly, the, the the amount of capital gain you would get from them is quite minimal for what mm. we're doing. Um, so we would need to sell a lot of buy to lets to have enough equity to uh, pump into any of the HMOs that we do. Gotcha. Um, we we buy on we buy at bricks and mortar value. We refurbish and then we refinance onto commercial lending, which is a lot higher. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a really good deal. We were very, very chuffed with it. Um, and uh, the end result was uh, more than what we were expecting to achieve from the sale. Nice. No, it's, uh, it's interesting that you, about the benefits of going high quality. Mm. And they say a lot about people adapt to their environment. And I went and looked uh, a few years ago now at uh, emergency accommodation uh, yeah. scheme. And, Honestly, it was it was terrible. There was plaster hanging off the walls. There was kind of broken floorboards and everything else. I just thought these poor people are living here and they don't really stand a chance because the environment in which they're living in is is terrible. Yeah. And you think well, if if they were living in uh, you know a, a nice environment, then they stand a greater chance to 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 make a comeback, to re rehabilitate and and get back on their feet, right? And it's it's probably similar to HMOs where. If you if you you're living in uh, a not particularly nice HMO, let's say, you're probably paying lower rents. You probably respect it less, and you're probably, I guess, from a landlord's perspective, maybe uh, a less desirable tenant. While the people that are paying the the premium for the the top end HMOs are probably all working professionals or uh, at a certain level or a certain caliber, 
and therefore makes your life easier as well. Because I have obviously quite a few friends that have uh, HMOs and they say that they're part-time landlord and part-time counsellor. And yeah. <laughs> you, you don't get, you get into property for that financial freedom, let's say, uh, mm. and you don't getting it, get into it to deal with Dave because he's drinking Jane's milk on the sly sort of thing. And so yeah. what's your view on that? Cause I know that you said that you have some HMOs obviously where you operate, but then further afield as well. So do you pass them over to a managing agent and do they deal with that? Cause I find that from what I've seen is you've got to treat it like a business and not like a hobby. Cause as soon as you start giving your phone number out to tenants and say, Oh yeah, if you ever have a problem, call me up. They will, they'll be calling you up at three 100%. in the morning. This yeah. is not working. This isn't happening. You think, no, 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 I'm a business. I operate nine to five Monday to Friday or, or, or whatever. And yeah. um, I feel like if you, if you give people a certain inch, they'll take a mile. So you have to be particularly careful on that and interested to hear your thoughts. And if you've got any stories behind that. Yeah, well, I think um, like the, the the nine to five thing, Monday to Friday. I, I, I don't know what that looks like. Um, I think <laughs> I think as 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 a, a business owner, or um, especially as a landlord, if if you if you if you um, stick to the nine to five thing, especially in the beginning, then it can be quite difficult. Um, but thankfully, where we're at now. Um, I can stick to that a lot more, and I've actually cut my hours down, and I only work three days a week now. Um, so it, I think when it comes to the management and the uh, running of properties, uh, it does take a very specific skill set, which is why a lot of people run for the hills as soon as problems happen and sell them or they move on. Um, so picking a good management agent is extremely important. Um, and what we have found is the independent uh, one person band, if you like, with it starts up, they tend to be much more efficient and much more al aligned with what we're trying to achieve. When you look at the bigger organizations, then it's more of a the tenants, it's just another tenant moving in and moving out. There's no personality to it. Uh, whereas the type of organizations we've been working with uh, to start with have been smaller uh, setups and that worked well, really well for us because it it gave us a chance to actually dictate how the property was managed as well um, because there are less people on the books, there are less landlords. The bigger the organization gets, the bigger the management agent becomes, uh, the more difficult it is to be, to have that personality in there, um, which is where then the tenant-led viewings and things comes into play. So that if the management agent doesn't have the time to give that level of detail and attention, then you can pass that on to somebody else. Um, we really, we, we've got properties in the Northwest, the Northeast, the Midlands, the South Coast. Um, and to be quite honest, it, it can be a pain in the ass to manage them all. Um, we've got our own management agency now that we've set up for that reason, because we got fed up with um, so many variances and differences between the agencies and the level of service that you receive. Um, but personally, I didn't get into property to become a management agent. That was never a goal. Um, but I did learn the ropes for a period through lockdown when I had nothing else to do and came to the conclusion quite quickly that it definitely isn't something that I want to do. So I was, I was right all along. <laughs> 
but I think it's uh, it was good to learn it. So now that Again, if you don't try, you don't know, right? If you don't try, you don't know. Um, but when now we're training our team to do it, I know the ropes, I know what should be done and how it should work. Um, so having a reliable, trustworthy person on the ground um, is extremely important. Um, so it doesn't have to be a full-time person. It can be someone that works a few hours uh, a week for you um, that's available to ground and let the plumber in when something breaks down, to do a viewing when uh, a room is empty, um, or to pick up the phone uh, when the light bulb is fused. Because yeah. literally, like you had said, they will, tenants will call, especially when they're living in HMOs, it's like babysitting. They expect everything, the full package to come together. Um, and to a certain extent it does, but we still put a lot back to them as well. Yeah. Um, so we're not going to babysit. We're not going to tell you which cupboard to put your cornflakes in. You know, we're not going to, some of the properties we're debating whether or not we should have locks on the doors. Mm -hmm. um, there's an argument that, um, you know, we have, you can have kitties for the house where people buy the toilet rolls and buy the dishwashing tablets and you buy the washing up liquid so that there are no arguments about it. Um, but we had a, had a phone call, not a phone call, had a message a few weeks ago in one of the houses to say that the shower wasn't working, did no hot water. Um, and we've got a 24-7 uh, maintenance uh, helpline. Mm -hmm. um, which nobody seems to want to use. So sent them the number for the helpline to call these guys. They'll go through a diagnostic with you. And if we need to get somebody out to the house, we can get it for you. But this will be a quicker way of resolving the problem. And we're about, I heard nothing for about two or three weeks. And then message back again saying, the shower isn't fixed. Why, why are you not looking at, why are you not sorting it? <laughs> Just like... Um, not quite sure how to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> you just reattach your previous message. Yeah, so please refer to the above message. Now call this number. Um, so it is like you have to spoon feed in some occasions. Mm. I think it's good that you did it though, because I find that once you've done something, you go, right, okay, this definitely isn't for me. But equally, you realize how long some things take, which you might not appreciate, and other things that yeah. don't actually take as long as you thought. And for instance, let's say you've got to check in a new tenant and you've got to do some paperwork. You might think it's a five-minute job, but actually you've got to do all these additional checks. And again, it, it, it makes you um, manage their time uh, in terms of your employees' time a lot better and kind of appreciate what they're doing and where their time is being spent. Because I've seen it before where uh, larger companies, for instance, where uh, a, a junior will be given a job and they'll say, oh, this should take you 20 minutes when actually there's so much more that needs to be done that this 20 minutes actually takes two hours and the manager will get annoyed at the, the junior saying, well, <laughs> it's a 20 minute job. And once the junior says, well, no, you asked me to do this, but I had to go and get this information from X person. Then I had to pull the data from Y. Then I had to do this and do that. And this is why they yeah. go, oh, I didn't realize. But when you've done it yourself, you know how long things should take and being able to manage it is far easier. Yeah, exactly. And I guess in some instances as well, we assume that people um, will understand the message that we're putting forward, but they may not. Um, so, for example, we've got a, quite a few people that English isn't their first language uh, sure. living in our property. So if we give them a phone number to call a plumber, um, but they don't understand or cannot communicate with that person properly, properly, um, then maybe they're nervous to make that phone call. Maybe they don't want to be on a video call or maybe they're uh, not comfortable with it. So yeah. again, 
So it's just digging that a little bit deeper as to say, well, we've given you the information, we've put the service in place for you, so what's stopping you from doing it? Rather than just automatically assuming it's their fault, mm. it's like looking at the bigger picture. Don't get me wrong, it's annoying. Um, and it's just like, why the hell don't you just call the number? But well, why are they not calling the number? Is there is there mm. a, a, a gap in the middle, a problem that, that's preventing them from doing it? Um, that's interesting. I wouldn't consider that, yeah. Yeah, so it could yeah, be it's like social anxiety or something, and yeah. kind of fearful about that. Then, yeah, those, those kind of intricacies that maybe you and I take for granted that yeah. other people are, are fearful of. Yeah, yeah. Or if, if uh, let's assume we're, I don't know, we're five people living in a house. You're in one room, I'm in another room, and I've assumed you've made the call. You've assumed I've made the call. But if we're not communicating with each other, then nobody knows that that's that hasn't yeah. actually been done. So I think again, it's just. Digging a little bit deeper and not taking the bog standard old school landlord approach and blaming the tenant for everything that goes wrong. Yeah. Um, don't get me wrong. In instances, they, they do need to be pushed, um, but it's not always the tenant's fault. Oh, sure. Oh, interesting. So yeah. going back to the SA, obviously, it was the first time you dabbled into SA, was that just Airbnb or did you kind of put it up on booking.com and all those other bits? And how did you find uh, setting that up? And you said that kind of it was with the NHS. Was that kind of an exclusive deal or contract with the NHS or was it just all done through booking.com? And give us a bit more kind of context around that and equally the, the returns on that. So was it better than your HMO, but you just have a preference to HMO so you decide to convert back or actually was your HMO asset better performing than SA, just give, give us a bit more information around that. Yeah, so I think um, in, in essence, HMO obviously is our main strategy, but we do have other strategies in the background that we work on as well. Okay. <clears throat> We've always been of the of the mindset that, you know, we started off with the buy-to-lets, we've still got them in the portfolio. They're, they're still there, they're still ticking over. Um, then we moved on to HMOs um, and that became our main strategy. Um, but we do believe in a in a, a diverse portfolio, so that we're not reliant on one specific income stream. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess the term multiple streams of income has always been banded around, well, at least within this industry over the past uh, how many years. But I think it, it is actually true. Um, so we will rely on HMOs for our main income, um, but in some instances, we may need to diversify, as we did have to do in Portsmouth. Um, so service accommodation would be the the next go-to, you like the next best thing. Uh, my friend that I mentioned earlier, who was the one that got kind of encouraged, not encouraged me, but was my uh, uh, the person that was in property before I started. Um, she manages service accommodation on the south coast, um, okay. so that was quite handy. Um, so I was like, we've got this house. It's a seven bed, um, all en suite, set up to be a, a, a professional HMO let, but we can't let it yet because we haven't got our planning permission. Can you rent it as service accommodation? And the company that she has had a contract with the likes of the NHS and different organizations. So awesome. it was a no brainer really for me to hand it over. I knew it was going to be well managed because it was my friend managing it. Um, so she had just took it over and um, looked after it really. Um, so did she take kind of like a percentage management fee, like a normal agent management fee would be? Yeah, so management fees for uh, service accommodation is generally higher than it is for HMOs because there's a lot more involved 
Uh, and it's and your fees go buy to let then hmo and then sa correct yes okay. so you could be paying anything i think it was up to around about the 20 percent mark is is for, for service accommodation management um whereas the uh hmos is usually between 12 to 15 depending yeah. on the level of management um so we uh yeah so i handed it over to her um and she had her own cleaning team in place she had her own contracts in place um uh, I still prefer HMOs personally uh, because it's a more consistent income. Yeah. Uh, service accommodation I had found, and maybe this is just because we were doing it on the South Coast, uh, is that it was very, uh, you had like peaks and troughs. Yeah. Um, so throughout July, August, September, we were raking it in. But then come January, February, March time, we had very little coming yeah. through. Um, so when the NHS was there, it was obviously consistent, but they didn't stay for the full term. Um, so after they left, then we had the peaks and troughs come through. So I, I like the consistency of the HMO income, um, mm -hmm. and that's that's why I prefer that element of it. Okay. So then going back to the HMO deal that you sold and the valuations that you were able to achieve on that, there's I've seen plenty of discussions around. Mm. Uh, people perhaps pushing for a certain value on a HMO and then uh, they kind of moan and complain when they get downvalued and it gets put on water. And that must be quite troublesome from an ex exit perspective when you go, oh, well, we're gonna, we're gonna get six rooms, we're gonna do this, and then we're gonna get a, a, a multiplier uh, valuation, and then we're gonna be able to pull this amount of equity out, et cetera, et cetera. But then actually the surveyor comes around and says, no, we're gonna do it on a, a bricks and mortar, and then that downvalues by, hundred thousand pounds let's say have you kind of had any down valuations like that or have you um been able to kind of strengthen your argument by saying no, look at the high quality here it's obviously not a family house there's locks on each door there's clearly defined you know the the uh, doors are numbered one to one to six or whatever yeah. um you've kind of clearly had things set up to make it obvious and clear that's a HMO does that kind of strengthen it and do you kind of do packs when surveyors come or or give me a bit of a, a story behind that yeah so we definitely always do a do a refinance pack always okay. have a refinance pack and always meet the uh, valuer in person when they come around to the house don't send anyone else unless it's a very trusted colleague um, and someone with a lot of experience um, that always goes well in our favor um, and a lot of people don't do the packs because uh, I guess it's a lot of work to put them together. Not every value will, will appreciate it, but I have, it's very few and far between that will turn a, a pack down. Um, when it comes to the valuations of the properties themselves, you know, it's, it is a, a, every property investor's uh, nightmare um, when that down valuation comes. The reason that we go big in their HMOs is because when you've got that sui generis planning permission, um, you can go for commercial lending. Anything below that, then you're either, you're either hybrid or bricks and mortar. But when you've got your planning permission in place or you're operating in an Article 4 area, it makes a difference. So just just to clarify that, so the when you've, a HMO um, will require, uh, any, oh, sorry, anything up to six people, um, doesn't need planning permission for a HMO. Once you put the seventh person in a HMO, it then becomes a sui generis HMO, which means you need planning permission. And that kind of differentiates between commercial and bricks and mortar. 
Um, so when we go for the bricks and mortar, then we know we're guaranteed to get our commercial valuation. Doesn't mean that we'll get the valuation as high as we want it to be, um, but we will get commercial on it. The Would you have a preference to go for a seven person HMO then to get that sui gen so then you can get a commercial valuation that way opposed yeah. to taking the risk on a six? Yeah, because the, our, our reasoning behind that is because we, we do such a high level of refurbishment, we spend a lot of money on them. Yeah. Um, so, so if we didn't get the commercial valuation, we would be leaving a lot of money and a lot of deals and yeah. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do as many as we do. Um, so that's our reasoning behind that. Um, obviously, with everything that's going on with uh, utilities increasing, um, valuers are down valuing because the cost of running the HMO is a lot more expensive than it used to be, but we're pushing the rents up. So it's kind of starting to balance itself out. Yeah. Um, interest rates are a little bit higher than obviously than what they were. But again, um, that's not a long term thing. So we'll take a hit for a little bit. Um, but in the main, it's actually been quite consistent and we have hit the valuations that we wanted in most of our properties. The smaller ones are the ones where it's less Sorry, where it's more difficult to get what we need or what yeah, we want. Yeah, I can imagine if it's kind of a, a four-bed HMO, they can say, well, we'll just turn this back into a four-bedroom house. That's exactly it, yeah. yeah. So if you've got a four-bed or a five-bed HMO and it's not that significantly different to the house next door, then why would you get a higher value than the bricks and mortar of a three-bedroom family home next door? Yeah. Um, if the lender has to sell it, it's going to be sold as a three-bed house. So just for the audience members then, so in an Article 4 area, how many members live in the house before it's classed as HMO and you need that license? Any more than three. Yeah. But then it's, it then it's uh, it needs a, a planning permission. So okay. the, the the difference between and this is where a lot of people get confused. And to be honest, it you know sometimes I have to stop and think about it myself. So you've got planning permission and licensing are two separate um, pieces of paper, if you like. So you have to apply for permission to rent the property. And then once you've got the permission from the council to rent it, then you can apply for your license. Two separate departments, two separate applications. Um, some people assume that because they've got the planning permission in place that they can automatically rent it. Uh, but it's, it's a permission to rent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you actually do it. So you don't ever have to implement that planning. And unless you've got the license in place and can prove that it has been used within that use class, then it's just a permission that's in place. You can get planning permission to build a house in your back garden, but you don't ever have to build that house. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. Okay. And then for, you kind of said there that you get obviously the, the, premium, the premium on the commercial valuation. What sort of valuations would you look to achieve or hope to achieve um, in terms of the multiplier for HMO? It really depends on where in the country it is. Okay. Um, obviously, down south, the the a lot of the 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 valuations are based on obviously the income that the property is generating and the yield in the area. The further south you go, the lower the yield. The further up north you go, the higher the yield. So for as an example, we're looking at around the 6 to 7% mark in Portsmouth, where it's 10.5% in Warrington. Um, okay. So the lower the yield, the higher the value. Um, so it's, it's based on that, really. Um, so we, we, when, we're, when we start, 
looking at a property or looking at investing in an area, we start. We, we use what we call start with the end in mind. So we know before we buy the house what end valuation we're going to get or what the worst case scenario and work towards that. Sure. Okay. I've seen in a few Facebook groups recently, people started to talk more about kitchenettes going into rooms as well. So then they can mm. try and, uh, I guess, label them as, as studios and try and um, do evaluation that way. Is that something that you've looked at? What are your thoughts on, on that as a model? Uh, it, it works really well in some areas. Uh, okay. Some parts of the UK, uh, kitchenettes seem to be a really popular selling point. Uh, in other parts of the UK, it's not. So I would just go by what's in the market and what's popular, what what your tenants are looking for. So pro provide the asset that people are looking or wanting to move into. Um, my, we I guess an, an issue I have with, or a couple of issues I have with, with kitchenettes is number one is the fire hazard. Um, it doesn't really encourage the co-living element because everyone lives in their own rooms, but it does work for some people that are not interested in the co-living space element of it. Um, but the biggest thing is council tax. Mm. And if you have a self-contained unit, each individual unit can be banded for its own individual council tax. Um, so if you're paying the council tax, it's going to cost you a hell of a lot more um, or recharging it to the, to, the, to the tenant, or you have to reduce your rents to, to account for that because your tenant will have to pay more per month to live in that property. Yeah. Um, there's a massive issue at the moment with rebanding HMOs in general, whether they've got kitchenettes in or not. So personally, right now, I would probably, I, I wouldn't want to do them because it's such a gray area, but there is a, a there is a, um, a white paper going through the government right now where they're lobbying, lobbying to change the rules from the VOA um, around council tax and what is viewed as a self-contained unit because it's a bit grey right now. Oh wow! Okay, interesting. Yeah. You know when we'll hear mo more on that? Uh, hoping to hear more um, early next year. Um, but from what we know at the moment is that any room that is self-contained and has its own kitchenette in it will still be banded as its own oh. unit. That's interesting. It's, it's interesting the answer that you just gave there because it nicely actually links back to what we started, spoke about mm -hmm. at the very beginning about uh, you can find all this information online on YouTube or, or what have you, but actually there's tailored answers to specific questions because every part of the UK is different, every council yeah. is different, each requirement is different. And so having people to support you and give you tailored bespoke advice in that area is, and kind of experts like yourself in that field is, is very, very key. Yeah, 100%. Um, it, it is so different around the UK. And it's not just people ask or people say that, oh, I heard Manchester is really good to invest in for HMOs. Is that right? Well, <laughs> you know, which borough of Manchester are you talking about? Which part of the borough are you talking about? Which street are you talking about? Mm. What's your strategy? Who are your tenants? What's your demographic? So, yeah, it's knowing the, it's really deep diving into the specifics. Um, that really makes it work and don't get distracted by everything that's on social media. If you want to learn how to do it or want to know what's working, speak to the people that are doing it and making it work. Absolutely. <laughs> In which case, so if people want to reach out to yourself and learn a bit more about HMOs, how'd be the best way to, to get hold of you? Uh, best way to get hold of me is probably on social media. 
Um, so Instagram, so it's just Scott Baker Properties on Instagram or my um, or on Facebook as well, Scott Baker Properties. Um, happy to to reach out and have a chat with people that that want to want to connect. Good stuff. Man. I really appreciate your time. Have you got any questions or anything else you want to cover before we shoot off? Uh, no, I think I think it's been a it's been a nice a nice chat. <laughs> Hope I didn't ramble on too much. <laughs> no, good stuff. Well, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, thanks a lot. Now, no worries. Thanks for having me, Tom. Cheers. Cheers. Take care.